ETF Prime is hosted by Nate Geracine, president of investment advisory firm, the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with Vetify or any of its affiliates. Vetify's participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or indication by Vetify of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. Motley Fool Asset Management asks, do you like the low cost and convenience of passive funds, but want stock picks that have the potential to beat the market? The Motley Fool 100 Index ETF could be the solution you've been looking for. Motley Fool Asset Management took the 100 top-rated stock picks selected by the analysts at the Motley Fool LLC and put them all into one simple low-cost ETF. The ticker is TMFC. For more on this fund from Motley Fool Asset Management, visit fooletfs.com slash ETF Prime. That's fooletfs.com slash ETF Prime. Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, joining me this week in studio, I might add, is Lawrence Hamptel, principal at Fortune Financial and Ramp Capital, who, if you're out on Twitter, you know exactly who I'm talking about. This guy has like 350,000 followers, which just puts Lawrence and I to shame. But it's funny. I actually met uh, both of these guys through Twitter. And as it turns out, we're all located here in Kansas City even though I've never run into either of them out in the uh, wild, which I'm not sure how that's possible. But in any event, we're all here together, and this is going to be a fun conversation. I have absolutely no idea where we'll end up, but what I do know is we'll definitely talk more about uh, social media and Twitter in particular because I do want to get the backstory from both Lawrence and Ramp on how they got started on Twitter and grew their followings and what they think of things under Elon Musk now. I also want to talk financial markets and how they view the uh, world there right now after a pretty big run-up in stock so far this year. We'll obviously get into ETFs, where I'm still waiting for both of them to actually launch an ETF. I think both could have some uh, compelling options here, so we'll see if that's even on their radar. And then if we have time, big surprise, I want to talk crypto and, yes, a spot Bitcoin ETF. But again, We'll just see where this takes us. And so without further ado, let me welcome in Lawrence Hamptel and Ramp Capital. Gentlemen, so great having you both in studio and welcome to the uh, podcast. Thanks for having us. Yep, thank you. All right, so Lawrence, this actually isn't your first rodeo on uh, ETF Prime, but if I'm not mistaken, the last time you were actually here in studio was uh, pre-pandemic, right? I think like 2019? Yeah, yeah. It's, it seems like a lifetime ago. The world is far different now from when it was then, but uh, it's good to be back and seeing people face-to-face -face and some degree of normalcy, which I think, you know, we're kind of there. Getting closer every day. And Ramp, just for the record, I want to let everybody know 
I was going to bring in some white claws <laughs> for you uh, today, but uh, as I understand it, you have a full day ahead, so alcohol free today. Yeah, it's a little, a little too early to start drinking. So, all right, so let's just start uh, on the topic of Twitter because I think it's kind of the elephant in the room, and I think especially with you, Ramp, you're obviously uh, anonymous, or I, I guess more accurately, pseudonymous, and we can talk more about that, but. Give us your backstory. Why did you first get started on Twitter, and how did you grow this thing to nearly three hundred and fifty thousand followers? Yeah, <clears throat> so uh, you know, my start actually was I actually blogged uh, in, on a different uh, pseudonym around the two thousand eight two thousand nine timeframe. You know, whenever the global financial crisis uh, was occurring, and uh, then it, then it kind of just morphed. I mean, I had. I had a good following and I enjoyed blogging and then there was some information that came out where, you know, people started noticing this trend towards the end of the day where the market would, and I'm putting air quotes up here, ramp towards the end of the day in the last 30 minutes and then you know, it kind of got dubbed the, the 330 ramp capital and I just sort of took that and and started creating a meme out of it, you know, not really knowing where it was going to take me and then, you know, I, I created an account. Uh, labeled Ramp Capital, and within the first day, there was a couple thousand followers, which back then in 2011, I think that was when I actually launched the account, was, the, or was it, no, it was 2013, sorry, 2013 um, was when I launched the account. I mean, getting a couple thousand followers on Twitter was a huge deal. Like, whenever you saw people that had 1,000 or 2,000 followers, like, they must be somebody, you know, back, back in the early days. I'm probably aging myself here, but um, so... Yeah, so I launched that and then just kind of kept going with it. And I think a lot of the people understood, you know, that meme that were that were interested in the markets. And then it just kind of grew organically from that. And I kind of just leaned into that. And I still, you know, I still try to do the blogging uh, on the side as well with that. But um, yeah, so that's kind of the backstory briefly there. In terms of being anonymous or pseudonymous, how important do you think that's been to growing the follow the following? Like, if you were tweeting just under your own name and likeness, do you think there would be a difference? Yeah, I do. I do. Um, I think there's a mystique element to it, um, and I, I've seen other people, you know, where they're also pseudonymous or anonymous, and they. They, they're able to grow a following because you kind of you can use your own imagination of like, what is this person? Who is this person? What's their background? Things like that. And I, I do believe that it, it, it helps grow. Um, and I know there's some been some people out there and some friends of mine who've who've basically uh, doxed themselves uh, on purpose to finally like come out of their shell. And that's fine. Uh, I don't know if that'll ever happen for me. It's, it's just kind of fun. I'm, I'm not hiding anything if that, you know, if that matters. But I just I don't know. It's, it's just it's fun. How hard has it been to actually maintain your anonymity? I mean, is that uh, is that been a challenge? Have you had some close calls? How yeah, yeah, I've had a couple close calls. Uh, at one, you know, one of the golf clubs I'm at, I've had two people come up to me. Uh, one because I was wearing some Y charts equipment one time, and there's like they, I think they put it together. Another time, I'd taken a picture uh, while I was sitting there putting and, and one of the guys was like working out in the room above and he was the only he's like you were the only guy out there so he paired up with me a couple weeks later and kind of broke it to me and so it's it it's fine like i said it's it's not a big deal and then i have you know my wife too she even though i, I i've stopped annoying her at this point with all the hey look at this tweet type of thing um <laughs> but she uh she she's told a few people like her boss and some other people so it is what it is i'm trying to kind of keep it down low but it starts to spread after a while. And 
Lawrence, you only have a paltry like twenty eight thousand followers, which is actually like double what I have. But <laughs> how did you uh, get started on Twitter? And it might also be good to take a quick step back and uh, perhaps just give us a little snapshot of what you do at Fortune Financial. Yeah. So what I do at Fortune, we we work with a few other advisors. So I'm one of a one of a group of guys and. I think our AUM is just under 300 million or so, and uh, I manage mostly uh, high net worth uh, individual stock and bond accounts. So basically, custom portfolios for clients. And I've been in the industry; it'll be 21 years come September. So I'm kind of a lifer, and uh, it's it's nice to work with a lot of these people, many of whom I've known since I started in 2002. Uh, with uh, I was actually acquired by Fortune Financial. Dennis Wallace is my my senior guy, and he acquired the practice I was working with, and and then I kind of learned from him and grew up through the business that way. Uh, I actually started my Twitter account in 2015 to follow the Royals. I had no real plan to become any sort of presence. And I kind of think, and I was never anonymous, I was always just uh, Lawrence Hamptel reply guy. And I think that's kind of how you get started is it's sort of like, you know, I kind of joke, it's like prison, you know, your first day in the in the can, you got to go pick a fight with people. So <laughs> you just start replying to tweets and be like, actually, you know, that's not right. And then if you, you put out enough stuff, you get enough organic, you know, followers, and then they share your stuff and so on. And the nature of my blog, that kind of took off because I think a lot of advisory firms, and this is not a criticism, but a lot of advisory firms like to focus on, I wouldn't call it, uh, it's sort of generic content about 401k saving plans, and that's totally important and useful. And the, the direction I took with the blog was sort of like a little bit more in-depth analysis on industries, uh, why some factors work the way they are, different ideas that I, I think is sort of unique content, or at least it seemed unique to me. And so that kind of caught on and I maybe I have a little bit of a reputation for that. So that, that's sort of the backstory. And, and then uh, it just kind of took off from there. And, and uh, I'm still in the minor leagues compared to ramp, but I'm hoping to get called up someday to the big leagues. How much time do you guys actually spend on Twitter? And I'll tell you, I'll caveat that by Slip. telling you that I <laughs> I hear from my wife all the time. We'll be standing around, you know, in the kitchen in the evenings. And she's like, you're on Twitter again. You spend too much time. Like, Luckily, she's not out there. But like ramp with you, I mean, I feel like you're always out tweeting. How do, how do you manage that? Uh, man, it's it's a problem. It's an addiction. Uh, <laughs> Actually, it's it's been it's been going down uh, more recently. Uh, I will say that um, one of the features actually that the Twitter Blue put out that actually helps me not spend as much time on Twitter is they have these this feature that's I think it's I forget what it's called top articles or lists and what it does is it takes either the people that you follow directly like like if you guys tweeted the same article like say say lawrence you put out a blog post and then five other people that i followed tweeted about that right. i would see it in the list and it talk it shows how many people are talking about certain things so it kind of like filters down all the stuff that you're you know your your feed if you if you kind of call your feed which is what i've been doing for years now is to try to like get really tight so that it's not a mishmash of royals and other different things i try to keep sure. it pretty 
you know, in the zone there. And I think that's, it's also part of the reason why I think people don't like Twitter as much as we do probably is because we have very good feeds where it, it hits all of our interests and it's not just random stuff happening all the time. Right. You have um, to curate it a lot to get the most value yeah. from it. Yeah. But I, I, you know, there was, I think, I think the peak, like where I couldn't put my phone down on Twitter was, was that January, was that January, January, 2021, which was right during the meme stock revolution, whatever. It was ridiculous. I mean, there was just, you, I couldn't put my phone down. It was just watching that happen. Um, I think I was, I I don't say I was one that broke the story, but whenever AMC was stopping people from selling or was it stopping from selling? I'm trying to remember now too. You're talking about Robin hood. Who did I say? Sorry. Uh, AMC. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, But I think it was AMC. Yeah. It was AMC. Robin hood was stopping people from like selling it, I think, or they're doing something. I remember I I tried to do it that early in that morning and then I saw the alert and then I tweeted it out and it kind of went from there. But you could, you could just tweet out anything and it would almost go viral in 2021. I think that was sort of peak, Twitter, at least as far as the, you know, the FinTwit side or because I think there was also just a mishmash of like FinTwit, but then crypto Twitter, you know, people were st- we were in the still in the middle of a pandemic. So people were at home spending way too much time online. Um, right. So I, I, right. I think that was kind of the peak. I've, I've, I've slowly started to take, you know, less and less time. There's so many more things to do, but I'm still very active, obviously. Um, yeah. So one of the things that I've learned to do over the years with Twitter is a lot of people delete their tweets. I like to go back and and have threads that go back several years. You can follow up and and keep adding to them. If I write an article and I share it on Twitter and then there's something else that confirms or maybe sometimes if I'm feeling really generous, something that, you know, contradicts what I wrote, I'll add it to that thread and go back. And so Twitter will be open on my desktop throughout the day. And if I see an article, I'll just post it and share it and then go back to what I'm doing. So I don't know if that counts because I'm not constantly screening tweets or looking at stuff. But then, of course, the, the DMs are, are the real value to Twitter, which I think everybody would agree. And there's a lot of good information sharing that's that's off the, the main timeline. And that's where I spend the majority of, of my time is just uh, over the years, you know, you make connections and you share ideas and, and you have similar interests. And so that's really where, where people are sharing their analysis and their, their more in-depth thoughts versus just the timeline. And I spend less time on that. But obviously, if you see a stock that's moving, Twitter is going to be the first place you check because that's where the news usually goes first. And so that gives you a better indication usually of most than other websites of what's moving what and, and what's causing it. Have uh, you have you gotten clients from Twitter? Um, not directly. People have reached out to me, but um, I generally try to stay away from that. I, I like to keep a distinction, you know, between yeah. like my personal page and and uh, just try to keep it a little bit of, I don't know if you call it like a Chinese wall, whatever the term is, you know, keep it a little separate. But uh, I've definitely made a lot of useful contacts for sure. Mm-hmm. Ramp, you sort of uh, mentioned Twitter peaking back in early 2021. I think there were a a lot of factors behind that. You hit on the pandemic, right? Everything going on with the meme stock craze. But what I'm curious about, if you look now, you know, Elon Musk takes a lot of criticism for, look, he's a high profile figure. So he's going to take a lot of criticism regardless. But you see a lot of people taking jabs at some of the changes he's made to Twitter. And as somebody who you know, I don't like this term, but as a power user of Twitter, or at least a power presence on Twitter, how do you think um, Elon has handled uh, Twitter and some of the recent changes that have been made? 
Yeah, no, it's a great question. Um, I'm still, I think I'm a little torn still. Um, I think previous to Elon, you know, I'd always had this concern, at least on my account, if I'm doing too many um, SHIT posts, if I'm going to piss somebody off and they're just going to nuke the account, you know, and it's not, it, and I think part of that's because like of all, like what Lawrence was saying, all these contacts, like that's the true power of Twitter is like all the contacts, all the con contacts that you make in the dms and right. and having those so that was that was always a concern to me so i always felt like i was stepping on eggshells with either either jack or Prague, whoever it was previously because now that elon sort of released some of those twitter files it kind of exposed some of the stuff that was happening that i'd always thought was happening behind the scenes and you can kind of just tell whenever you feel like you're getting shadow banned a little bit. So that's always one thing that's annoyed me with Twitter was just having to feel like this is the free speech platform where it's supposed to be, yet you can still see people getting deplatformed. And, you know, when you spend 10 years on something and you build a following, you want to be able to take that with you and not have that risk of losing it. And that's sort of the power as well of, of like, you'll see the rise now of newsletters because nobody can take away your emails. So once I have those emails, whether I'm on whatever service Substack, beehive whatever it doesn't matter those emails are now yours so that's like one way that you're sort of getting you know getting getting um your followers kind of poured over with you but right. elon elon does have you know some of the criticisms are valid um you know he he sort of takes the approach in my opinion he he goes out there and he'll he he has his own vision of what it, he wants twitter to be and that's fine everyone should uh, but he'll go out there and he'll, it seems like he wants to go try to break it and then fix it first, sort of like an engineer mindset. Um, and some of those things, I think people, the criticisms are not valid. I think, you know, the whole, the, the biggest thing I think was the, was the, the, the blue check mark thing. Uh, that, that thing did always annoy me. Just these people who think that they're celebrities, you know, I'd have people with 200 followers that were getting check marks before Elon and it's just like, who are you? You know, um, right. so that that was one of the things. Uh, there's just a million things. And now, you know, now it sort of seems like it's a little bit more, I would say, right leaning versus left leaning before uh, on the political spectrum with with Jack and Parag. So it's kind of wild to see how it just, you know, transitions between them. But, you know, he's I, I do think he's trying. I don't think he's trying to just completely, uh, you know, light forty four billion dollars on on fire for fun. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I, it, it's, it's to be determined. I think he's doing things that I, you know, I'd like, for instance, real quick, I, I wrote a blog post about, you know, and it was literally titled Twitter should pay us back in 2019. Well, it finally happened. Have uh, you gotten a bag yet? I have not gotten a bag yet. <laughs> I've been talking to people. It's not going to be a big bag. Uh, it, you know, again, it's more just to, to pay my, my entire thesis with that too was, you know, look at, look at look at uh youtube is probably the best example uh where you can just put out content put out videos and you know if they put out ads on those you get a small revenue share and it it, it encourages people to produce more content and, and that's even how twitter runs too is you have the power users like myself and others that put out so much content that it really drives most of the conversations i mean literally just yesterday some guy uh tweeted some picture i don't know if you saw this tweet but he tweeted a, a, a an image of his grandpa's phone and it was his screen time and it said something like my grandpa's screen time is elite and it was he used it for like nine minutes oh, man. you know for for the day or something like that in like an hour and a week and and so then i had actually quote tweeted it 
and then Elon liked it and replied to it, and then he his post went viral. So it's like, I'm not saying that I was the cause of that, but I kind of kick-started that, and then you can kind of see like how you can drive conversations if you have certain levels of users, right? And so, yeah. Yeah, I, I would just say, since he's taken over, and I, this is just my my uninformed opinion, is that Elon seems like a very brilliant but impulsive guy. He got Twitter, probably wanted to realize a return on his investment right away. So the first thing you do is cut expenses. Probably didn't realize how much uh, capital intensity there is with other social media platforms you have to invest to grow. So that that sort of went or led to this decline in the uh, quality of the service. And I know that I've had open direct messages, for example, for a long time. I've made a lot of useful connections that way by being available. Well, now it's just constantly swamped with uh, bots and, and porn bots and you name it. And so those sorts of things, you realize that they're under-investing in some of the, the filters to, to relieve some of those things. And, of course, the thing that has driven me nuts is that, uh, I don't know, I think I've been impersonated 30 to 40 times <laughs> by now, and I'm still not going to pay for the damn blue check mark. <laughs> So that's just fine, but that's just the way it, it goes, and you, you take the good with the bad. Um, I'll pay, I'll pay for you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. It's, it's been a rough, uh, rough few years for tobacco stock, so I need all the health I can get. So anyway, but, but I think it's still a very useful thing. I, I think that it's, it's really uh, without peer as far as like microblogging and, the, and sharing data and, and building your network. Um, so I think it'll still be here to stay, but... I have hope that it will go back to kind of the higher quality platform than it was uh, not so long ago. Because commodities indices are more likely to represent the super cycles of yesteryear than today's new and emerging commodities regime, Newberger Berman's actively managed commodity strategy ETF seeks to transcend the limits of traditional indexing, offering both inflation insurance and an emphasis on the catalyst driving today's changing economy. Embrace the road ahead and learn more about NBCM at nb.com slash nbcm. An investor should consider NBCM's investment objectives, risks, fees, and expenses carefully before investing. This and other important information can be found in NBCM's prospectus, which you can obtain by calling 877-628-2583. All ETF products are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Please refer to the prospectus for a complete discussion of NBCM's principal risks. Vetify's Fixed Income Symposium is the most important fixed income event of the summer. Join experts such as Simplify CEO and founder Paul Kim, Vetify's head of research Todd Rosenbluth, and more. Register for the July 24th Fixed Income Symposium at etftrends.com slash webcast slash fixed income dash symposium. And we'll get into uh, ETFs and markets here in just a minute, but you mentioned uh, Twitter being without peer what, what do you both think about threads, right? So this is the Mark Zuckerberg, you know, Instagram bolt on or, or whatever you want to call it. Ramp, I know you actually just blogged about this. Mm -hmm. uh, what, any initial thoughts or impressions on threads? Yeah, um, it's already coming down from the, the sugar high, at least from the initial week. I know, again, that was another time super people were super excited about it. I it's, it's just kind of annoying to me at this point that Zuck just keeps stealing people's stuff and he can do that at this point because he has 2 billion plus users at his disposal right I think the biggest thing with threads the biggest thing that scares me at least with it is the fact that 
the the integration process and to sign up was flawless. I mean, it was easier than I've ever seen anything. I, I did it in probably a minute. Like I, I already, if you already have an Instagram account and I, I guess they probably do it with Facebook too. I'm not hundred percent sure, but <clears throat> they were able to just, you, you link your account and it's a different app. So it's not like integrated right now into Instagram where you can just hit a button in Instagram, but it's a completely separate app. But to be able to integrate that and start with two, you know, a billion to two billion users automatically, that's why you saw such a huge rise and, and you know, they were the fastest to a hundred million users within four days or five days, whatever it was. That is always the biggest hurdle with anything, anything, especially social media related is getting users, right? And then you got to get, the next step is then getting high quality users and users that talk about real content and content that people want to consume. The problem I think they're going to run into is the fact that all of these Instagram users, like what is their content? It's mostly based on videos and pictures, right? right. Sort of like TikTok. Graphics, yeah. Right. Like they, they, like Interactive they, posts. Yeah. They lean into the reels, which was just, a, you know, a, another, again, stolen item from TikTok. Um, so it, the reason it scares me the most is just the fact that also he could just sit, once it's created now and you have 100 million users, whether the content's there or not, doesn't really matter. He has a pretty lean team on it. And he mm-hmm. could spend, he could just leave it open forever because he already wasted, what, $12 billion on the metaverse and hasn't gotten really anywhere, at least publicly that he's shown. So the reason it concerns me is because he, he can just leave it open and they have all these users that could eventually, it might just take time and he can just sit there and, and wait it out. Whereas other companies, you know, like the Blue Skies and all these other decentralized platforms, they'll eventually just run out of money. And he's got just an infinite bankroll. So so let me ask you this, though. Would Threads even be a thing without the rate limiting stuff that the weekend that it came out? Yeah, it would. It would. It was just perfect timing. They actually, re- I think that they actually released it ahead of schedule because of that. Sure, That's yeah, they they're being it. opportunistic. But, but... If, you, if you saw yesterday, Adam Asari, who is the head of Instagram, he actually put out a tweet that they just hit rate limits on 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 threads so it's kind of ironic (laughs) that this is all happening and it's you know there's they're running into the same problems that twitter has i mean it is literally the exact clone of it which which is dumbed down features they don't have dms which again we've already talked about is huge um the the problem like right now is they don't have a chronological feed so if you're trying to get like the up-to-date like hey what's happening with apple right now you're not getting that from there you're getting celebrity posts that about what they're eating which was the twitter back in 2007 and 8 like that was the twitter back then yeah. what are you what are you eating for lunch type of deal and so i think the content yeah. is just it's it's subpar would be putting it nicely right now but you know i'm over there i'm posting i'm basically just cross posting at this point to me it's a hedge against again what we discussed earlier it's a hedge against having getting another platform being a first mover advantage those types of things i mean i have close to ten thousand already and that's mostly just because i'm able to port my same stuff over and it will will i continue posting i don't know we'll see like i it it ain't gonna you know bother me either way all right but but neither of you are going anywhere as it pertains to twitter no No, absolutely not i don't even have a threads account i mean and i kind of joke that maybe a few years from now people will look at say that there was a threads app and think it was related to fashion or something because to me it just seems totally unusable based on what my my friends have told me and i'm old i just don't have the patience to learn another app or ecosystem and and if twitter does go away maybe it'd be a mercy killing for me i could go back to doing more productive things so you know i don't want to replace one addiction with another so i think actually i think actually if 
it, Twitter wouldn't necessarily go away. I think they would keep the lights on. But to me, what could happen in the future if, say, threads were to overtake it at some point, it almost seems like Twitter would then become the Facebook, how Facebook was originally. Like Facebook originally, when they launched, was you had to have a college ID. You had to have a college ID to even get Facebook. And it was only to a select number of colleges. So it was all college kids at that point. And then if you remember, they started opening it up to the olds. And then from that point, then it's like, oh, shit, now my grandma's on it. Maybe right. I don't want to be on there. Maybe I got to, like, relax. She's with looking the, at your pictures from Cancun. Yeah, like, Whoa. Can, yeah, from spring break and going out to the bars <laughs> every night. And I was like, okay, maybe I got to cool it down. So then yeah. it started getting, you know, gentrified a little bit. Um, and the, and so now it's like I, I can almost view this as at some point in the future, I could see Twitter morphing into that because all of us olds here don't want to move again so we're just going to stick here with this and maybe that's what it ends up being and we're and that's fine we it, can it still may have end up that just being the three of us left that's fine tweeting at each other that's fine yeah, i'm not going anywhere <laughs> right. I, I don't have the patience to go no. get set up on a new app and try to you know grow a following there and i just don't i don't have it in me i'm staying on twitter exactly um, okay let's uh start pivoting into investing and obviously this is etf prime so of course let's start with etfs and i think a lot of different directions we can head here but uh, Ramp, I'll first ask you, have you ever considered launching an ETF? Because there have been several, several examples of people with large social followings launching ETFs. I actually talked about this last week with uh, Vetify's Dave Nodig, but you know they're really using the ETF wrapper to monetize those social followings. Have you ever considered something like that? Yeah, uh, I did actually. Um, <clears throat> this goes back a few years now, though. Um, so I'm trying to remember when I launched it. I think it was 20 yeah oh yeah it was 2020 it was 2020 when i first had launched uh what what i had dubbed we ramp which was basically just a crowdsource portfolio um and the timing of it, i remember because it was right before the pandemic happened so it was it was kind of wild of how i was operating that but essentially i was running polls through twitter um just because that was a feature that twitter offered i didn't know how else to do it i'd run a weekly poll every week where I would put four stocks in there, which were kind of just randomly generated. Sometimes I would just kind of see what was trending on Twitter. I'd put it in the poll that week. And then I think it, I think my initial, if I recall my initial time doing it, I had 10 stocks in the portfolio equal weighted. And then it was just whoever won that poll that week, I'd buy it at the close that week. And then it was a rotate, it, it was a rotating every 10 weeks. You'd, you'd take the last one out and put mm -hmm. a new one in and you just keep rotating the portfolio. So we iterated it with it a couple of years and it was fun. And so because I had launched that, um, that's when uh, Will and Tim from Roundhill, sure. which I'm sure you're familiar with them. Yeah. So they had reached out to me and they kind of saw that and they were like, I wonder if we could turn this into an ETF. Um, we never really got super serious with it because I could never really figure out how that would work. But now you can see, you know, now there's like the, the, I think we had discussed it previously. I, I haven't looked into it much, but it was the Meet, Meet Kevin ETF, is that yeah, what it's called? I talked about that last week. It's okay, the yeah, Meet yeah. Kevin Pricing Power ETF. The ticker go. on that is PP. <laughs> <laughs> so so we had talked about it. Uh, never really went anywhere. Still still not entirely sure. Because I think, actually, the other one that I remember now was the Gerber. Uh, yep, Gerber Ross, Kawasaki. So uh, yeah. Ross Gerber, ticker GK. So I think he partnered with Advisor Shares to launch that, which yeah. is really to offer their firm's investment strategy, right, in an ETF wrapper for right. people who don't want to be a full client of the firm. Right. So, so yeah, I think there's, I think there's ways to do it. I think again, the part of it is like, how do you get the escape velocity of getting AUM on something that 
can be kind of fleeting as a meme or, you know, I think with the meet Kevin, he's got a ton of YouTube followers, which, you know, that's, that's, that's where you can really try to like get more exposure through there to get more AUM. Whereas my own, it, I think it would be tougher to get, you know, that escape velocity of, of 50 million or more in AUM. I think it'd be tough. Yeah. Even with a meet Kevin ETF. And again, I talked about this last week, he has about 40 million in that uh, ETF, which is pretty good. But if you look here to date, that thing's up 60%. Right. So typically when you see performance like that, and to your point, he has a social following, you might expect there to be more assets coming into that. So it's just such a tough slog uh, in the ETF space. Lawrence, what about you? I know in the past we've talked uh, sort of tongue in cheek about a potential, uh, what was it, low vol momentum barbell strategy? Right. I think you yeah. had an alcohol, tobacco, firearms yeah. ETF. Yeah, yeah, ETF. Have yeah. you ever seriously considered anything in the uh, ETF space? I mean, I seriously talked about it. I haven't really done any of the legwork on it. Uh, you know, your day job just takes away a lot of your mental capacity to think about other ideas. And, and as an advisor, you know, we like to talk about the market, but that's not even the most important thing you do. I mean, you're dealing with clients, real life financial issues and solving those things. And, and that kind of stuff really eats up a lot of your time. And it, it should because it's important. As far as ETFs go, you know, I have written a lot about using the ETF model for factor barbells. And so uh, I, I do think still... Uh, a low vol or men vol pairing with momentum would make sense. The pandemic kind of screwed all that up because during the pandemic, you had this bifurcation in the markets. Half the economy was shut. Half of it was online, sort of screwed up the, the rebalancing. And, and so and even last year, the momentum funds, I think, rebalanced into energy just before the price drop. So it's just been kind of a, a messed up uh, 24, 36 months. But I think over the long term, those two factors do make a good a good pairing. And an ETF would be good for that. Another thing that I've, I've written about is there are value investors and there's quality investors. But there is a such thing as a quality value stock uh, and a lot of people associate value with something that is cheap but it's cheap for a reason quality is a high quality company but it's usually expensive there are actually high quality but cheap stocks they typically end up in uh, things like defense and tobacco which are categories that are famous for people not wanting to own for one reason or another uh, so I've this is free for anybody to steal, but I think you could make a pretty good case for a key QVLU quality value ETF. Uh, whether or not it would take off, I don't know. Uh, I also haven't quite determined how big that universe would be, and, and based on what criteria, what what quality criteria, what value criteria. Maybe that's something I need to reach out to Wes Gray on, but. You know, I think that's a potential there, and, and really multi-factor strategy would be the idea for an ETF, just because the idea between a, of a barbell is rebalancing. The ETF kind of alleviates any tax considerations associated with the rebalancing. Uh, so that makes that makes sense. I just haven't quite put it all together yet. Yeah, the ETF space is just so tough. There's a reason it's called the Terror Dome. And, you know, I think one of the biggest challenges threading this back into what we were talking about on social media is that obviously to have success with an ETF, you have to have good marketing and distribution and like ramp with your Twitter following. I, I actually think that you could move the needle here. The challenge is really compliance, right? ETFs are so constrained on what they can tweet, which is a huge frustration of mine. I, I guess do either of you have any thoughts on that or ETF marketing in general? 
Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> that was one of the things working with Roundhill too is, um, you know, I'd have to basically run everything past him to say, can I can I even tweet about this? Um, I don't have my own compliance department, obviously. <laughs> That's just the devil on my right shoulder. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, I do I do, I do feel though, you know, they and I'm I'm good friends with Tim and Will, and they they sent me they'll send me stuff, and it's kind of like the rules don't seem fair across the board with that with that kind of stuff on the marketing. It does seem like you should be able to uh, tweet about your own stuff without any repercussions not necessarily saying hey you need to go buy 100 shares of this etf right now uh, or you're missing out like okay obviously that's probably overstepping the bounds but you just see with twitter it's just like the people who don't aren't subject to the compliance rules it it does seem like they're just able to like kind of pump and dump stuff and it, it doesn't i'm not saying that we, we would obviously do that but sure. there, there needs to be i think clearer lines on that because we've worked with companies uh before where we either had to take tweets down just and, and there wasn't anything wrong with it. It was just you can't. Oh, you can't say that. Right. It's like all right. It's a. It's it's a, well. It's a huge issue because yeah. there's such a lack of education just among investors. Right. I won't head down that path. We don't teach personal finance mm-hmm. in school. We don't teach investing in school. Not going to head down that path today. But I, I, I've worked with a lot of ETF issuers where they have excellent content. They they may come on this podcast, do a great job educationally. They uh, write a blog, an article. They can't tweet it out mm-hmm. if if the ticker symbol is referenced. They're limited. Yep. on that and i get not tweeting performance or to your point if you're trying to solicit uh you know business i i get that but just educating people on the products i think it, it's a huge void in the marketplace and especially in the etf space we now have what you know 3100 3200 etfs it's a problem yeah i'm i'm hardly ever a fan of most regulatory measures i i typically think that there's a lot of unintended consequences associated with with most of those things they may be well in, intentioned, but how are you supposed to get your word out if you if you can't market your product? And it, it seems to me that uh, with proper disclosures and everything else uh, about your affiliation or your your stance with that product, it, it should be allowed to be put out there. But uh, this is a question for you guys because I just don't know uh, with the ETF space. How are, how would they ever really how would most ETFs ever get to significant AUM if they're not available in like defined contribution plans and things like that? I mean, because I feel like that's where most people have the majority of their savings, and so I, I just wonder what you guys think about that. Is will they ever become available or widespread in in four hundred one k plans outside of the ones that allow individual brokerage accounts or because that just seems like that's where the assets are for most people yeah i mean my quick take on that is where the real bottleneck is for a startup etf is is the wirehouses uh they have gatekeepers in place where it can be very difficult to get your etfs on those platform uh, on those platforms and then made available to their army of advisors so you can do a good job um, getting in front of retail investors maybe you have some seed capital some institutional investors who will come in but you really need access to those broader platforms and the advisors right. who are really going to drive it on the defined uh, contribution side so like we actually have all etf um, 401ks that we offer and there are platforms set up to be able to offer the etfs very easily very seamlessly into the existing infrastructure it's just the mutual funds are so dominant in that space, and they and the mutual fund format does work very well sure. in DC plan. So uh, we call that that's like the last bastion or, or the Alamo for mutual funds. At some point, I do think it'll be cracked, but right now it's a it's a tough nut. Sure. Yeah, and one more point on the you know on 
the compliance rules. I remember one time there was, it might have been Will who told me this, where if somebody says something about your ETF, whether it's right or wrong, like they could just completely lie about something and post some lie about the performance or whatever, they they weren't even allowed to like correct them on that against the compliance rules. Like that's that's yeah, ridiculous. and there's that's a spectrum ridiculous, you know? in the way issuers operate. You have some right. issuers who are very tight on the compliance side, other who push the yeah. boundaries a little bit. But yeah, in general, anything referencing your ticker symbol is going to get flagged, and you have to make sure you're operating you know within the within the boundaries. Um, okay, I, I want to move on and talk financial markets because I think we could talk ETFs <laughs> the remaining time. And as we sit here today, the S&P 500 is up about 19% this year. And I feel like a lot of people came into the year pretty bearish overall after last year. Um, but if you look at some of the stuff that's been working, it, it's really been all risk on. So the Qs, those are up 44%. I looked at the ARK Innovation ETF, ARKK, that's up nearly 60%. Uh, Bitcoin mining ETFs, these blockchain ETFs, you look at the performance on those, some are up 200, 300% plus year to date. And so I'm very curious what you both make of the uh, the stock market right now. And Lawrence, I'll uh, start with you. Well, I, I think if you go back and, and my, my sense of history is every time you get a Fed tightening cycle, it's associated with a compression and price to earnings multiples, which is what we saw last year. I think what did the S&P drop? 20, 25%, something like that. But it was mostly and the technology stuff the the things that have since rebounded very strongly it would be interesting to see and i don't have the data in front of me not putting you on the spot nate but those are up a lot but still how far are they down from their peak would be interesting to to see and uh that, that's just one thing that i i wonder about is the yield curve is still heavily inverted uh economic data has been mixed um jobless claims i think have have risen of late uh, I want to say continuing claims are up 20% or so from from their from their trough. So the economic data are definitely mixed. Like I said, the yield curve's inverted, but the market seems to be shrugging it off. So is this time different, or are earnings going to fall off a cliff? Um, it seems like most of the uh, performance this year has been driven by multiple expansion. Yet the Fed is still hiking, which is unusual. Usually the multiples tend to rise when when the Fed's about to ease off. Now, inflation has definitely been cooling, but it's nowhere near the Fed target. So I guess that's my answer is I just don't know. I mean, is it just a relief rally that maybe we're closer to the end of the inflationary scare than the beginning? Um, are we going to make it without much of a, a, of a decline economically? It, I think it's just too early to tell. But you're starting to see this uh, bifurcation again in the markets where it's all tech and all high beta, low vols getting left behind, values probably starting to have that gap. And it's, it's funny because you look at the value ETFs, which value just recently reached an all-time high this year. I tweeted this out. But within that value ETF, it's, it was Microsoft and Meta and Netflix. So it's not your, your father's value of banks and energy. It's, it's tech and communication services. So... Every, everything just seems a little bit screwed up to me. On the note of uh, tech and, and communication services, how concerned are you about the um, top heaviness in the market? That's gotten a lot of run, and I actually visited with a Strategas Todd Sohn last week. He had a stat that nearly 80% 
of the S&P 500's returns in the uh, first six months of the year were driven by the top 10 stocks, which, as you know, that's primarily those, you know, the large mega cap growth uh, tech companies. Does that bother you at all? So if you're, I guess I would frame it like this. If you're an index investor and you want to buy the market and you're buying the S&P 500 and 15% of the S&P 500 is an Apple and Microsoft alone. And if you recompose the technology sector to account for the fact that things like Visa and MasterCard and Google and, and uh, Meta slash Facebook have been removed but they're all former constituents of the tech sector i believe the tech sector would now be a, a higher weighting as a percentage of the market than it would in march of 2000. so we all know what happened in the 10 years subsequent to 2000 when the rest of the market did well and tech did very poorly uh, i mean would you feel very comfortable about that or would you feel better with a more broad-based approach with your investments so Everybody knows how 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 good Apple and Microsoft and and all of these tech companies are. They generate a ton of cash. Uh, they're extremely profitable. But at the same uh, time, you look at a lot of overseas markets in Europe, especially. And I think one of the reasons uh, that they have periods of of long periods, I should say, of poor performance is because they're so highly concentrated. Whereas in the U.S., you know. It's, typically been more broadly based uh the turnover at the top is is usually you know it's always a different horse who's leading the charge i, I don't know it just makes me a little bit nervous to see that there's so much concentration at the top from this point going forward if you're just purely an index investor so those are my thoughts on that ramp any thoughts uh, we're going to hit new highs this year that's what's going to happen <laughs> sorry we're going to ramp yeah i mean yeah I think all Larry's points are valid. Um, I will say I'm 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 probably as surprised as everybody else about how much the Fed has tightened and how we haven't seen. I mean, we did have like the the declines last year. Obviously, were were pretty significant. But I think as we continue, and they're probably gonna you know hike again here this next in the next few weeks. Um, it is surprising me still that we're kind of rallying into the face of that. I think people are starting to see the end. There's like you said, they're starting to see inflation cool. Uh, unemployment is still rates are still good. Uh, and you're starting to see that bifurcation. So I think there's still a lot of, I think people are just, they continually just always wait for that other shoe to drop. You know, the recession was, was the big one where, you know, there was that Bloomberg post back in October, where they said a hundred percent chance of recession, which you never, never, never say. It's always sixty percent. You always say sixty percent. That way, you can be right or wrong, right? Um, and you know, now we're seeing it. I just saw another thing. There was a note out from Goldman, I think, yesterday, talking about maybe a, they're lowering it down to twenty-five or thirty percent, something like that. So. It, you know, we're all just kind of sitting here waiting, waiting for it to happen. Um, maybe it happens right before the election and then makes 2024 20, even crazier. Well, the funny thing is that we did technically have two consecutive quarters of negative growth, right? But then they told us that's not how you define a recession anymore. So, you know, maybe uh, and, and historically, I think most of the damage comes as the yield curve is normalizing. So we're far, far away from that. So who knows but it, it's definitely felt like a recession for a lot of people especially in the tech sector which is it's interesting to note that these companies hired a bunch of people during covid laid off a bunch of people but now their stocks are at, at all-time highs and and almost with no real 
change in their fundamentals uh, earning trajectory as far as I know. Yeah, so. I know this is uh, completely cliche, but I think it really does come down to earnings. Like if you look at the forward PE on the S&P 500, it's over 19 right now above its historical average. You, you may have seen this last week. I tweeted out a uh, chart from Schwab that had 10 to 15 different valuation measures on there. Mm-hmm. And then they had it color coded. And I think out of, let's say the 15, 14 were either expensive or very expensive in terms of valuation, which again, this is Charles Schwab, right? They want long-term money coming in. Now, I think we all know that valuations, uh, those are typically poor short-term uh, market indicators, but they can be constructive longer term, right? They can have value longer term. But right. if you look at valuations, they, they are elevated. Well, and the, and the question is, so what do you do? You know, how do you position exactly, your, yeah. how do you position your portfolio? Uh, I typically like a more equal weighted approach because, you know, there's a lot of academic research that shows that that's it. it if you think of your portfolio, and apologize for being a nerd here, but I think of your portfolio as like a capital ship. And I've made this analogy before that capital ships like an aircraft carrier, whatever, they have watertight doors. So if one part of the portfolio of the ship is, is compromised, you lock it and it doesn't sink the entire ship. You look at like a concentrated portfolio where you have 15, 20% and two or three names, that's going to dictate to a large degree, what happens to your portfolio, regardless of what happens with the bottom positions. So it really just comes down to what are you going to do to account for the concentration and the expensive prices? Do you equal weight? Do you tilt to small and mid? Do you go overseas? And I think in in Europe, you know, Europe was the value play for much of the last 10 years. But I want to say that with, um, it's not it's not the same Europe as we're used to. Louis Vuitton and ASML and some of these big quality growth companies are pretty big weights in Europe now. So it's a it's a sort of a conundrum for people who are more passive investors. How do they want to position their portfolios given the run that we've seen? Well, it, it is a conundrum, but my you know my counter to that is obviously if you're a passive, let's say you're in the S and P 500, you get the benefit of that on the way up. And right. so the question is when you reach a a certain point, are you going to do something different? Like you look right now, the top 10 stocks in the S&P 500 currently account for about 32% of the holdings. Uh, Of course, NASDAQ is doing this special rebalance next week because that's so top heavy. And so I do think more investors are looking at equal weight products, but you could make the case that equal weight uh, products look more like mid cap exposure. And there's a whole debate around that. But I think what it comes down to is if you're a long-term investor and let's say you do believe that uh, the, the index is top heavy and maybe there's some downside risk. Are you actually going to make that change? Because you did get the benefit the entire way up. Uh, well, I personally have made the change, so you know, I can't <laughs> speak for everybody, but, but everybody's a, a little bit different and, 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 it, and it has been supported by the fact that, you know, we've been talking about concentration and tech and overvaluation since what, 2016, 2017? Uh, but guess what? You know, for a lot of those years, Apple, for example, was at 10, 12 times earnings. It's closer to 30 now. It's not going to capture the benefit of that uh, doubling or almost tripling in, in valuation again. Uh, so, you know, I, I guess my my thinking would be it's really not so much mid cap versus equal weight. It's what are those top 50 stocks versus everything else? And and I think unlike previous periods of concentration, if you look at 2000. The top 10 stocks for what? GE, maybe Bank of America. I'm going off Excellent. memory. Cisco. Right. Now it's 
tech, 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 tech. You've got NVIDIA, you've got Apple, you've got Google, you've got Microsoft. So it's pretty much a one-way bet, and it's going to be hard to convince me otherwise. And we're talking, and we're just talking rebalancing here too. We're sure. not talking like, hey, sell everything, right. you know, run away. Because I think that's the thing you see a lot on on Twitter too, or that these these traders that come out and they they they'll literally just go to cash, and then they'll miss out on the move, and they get bearish because they got pissed off that they missed the entire move up you know and you start seeing that you know very much all or nothing yeah yeah exactly it's the concentrate to get rich diversify to stay rich right and they i my strategy has always been so i have a 401k and a roth and individual accounts etc but like what i try to do is use my roth as sort of uh and and whether this is this is not financial advice obviously but (laughs) My Roth, I use it as sort of that play money uh, where I can just – and not, I'm not doing anything crazy here, but it's like I, I'll take more risk on individual names doing it that way versus the 401K just sits there, doesn't rebalance unless my financial advisor actually does what I don't, th- I don't think they do. We've, we don't look at it very often. And so one of the good things about that is I can actually then go back and track how did my 401K do by just not touching it versus my Roth where I'm sitting there – trading in and out as I feel necessary to buy individual names like Disney and Apple and NVIDIA, whatever. Um, and what's and, the answer to that typically? We How all know it? what the answer is. All right. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'll say it either way. The, the buy and hold strategy obviously wins, but you know, the, the catch is, is, you know, a lot of this comes down to the psychology. And, and if you can take one, two, 3% of your money and use that as play money to scratch that itch, that's to me is that's the way is like yeah you'll probably still underperform but it it also kind of helps you from not severely underperforming the market by taking 50 percent of your portfolio and trying to and trying to get rich and trying to trying to hit a 10x or you know so all right we have about 10 minutes left um i heard you say play money scratching the the itch and so i'm going to take this opportunity don't don't kill me to bring up the topic of crypto and uh, Lawrence, if I remember correctly, you're not the biggest fan here. You, I'll give you an opportunity to, to address that. Ramp, I have no idea where you land on this, but I'll just say if you look this year, Bitcoin is up over uh, 80%, right? Crypto has been running hard right alongside with tech stocks and, and, and you know, high beta, those sorts of things we were just talking about. So uh, Ramp, I'll start with you on a spectrum from uh, vaporware to a life-changing <laughs> asset class, where do you stand on crypto? Or if you want to talk about Bitcoin in particular, I don't care. But where, where do you stand on this? Uh, I'm, a, I'm agnostic. Um, I've seen personally, some of my friends, I've seen it life-changing money for some of them. Um, and, and that's awesome. And I think some of them are also smart enough to realize that like they still shouldn't have 90-plus percent of their money in Bitcoin. It only takes... You know that, that everyone's saying it takes one to five percent of that, and, and you could easily, uh, you know, make up for any any times you missed out. But I, th- I'm agnostic on it because I do believe that you know there there returns out there available for people who are interested in it. And the the thing is, is like with crypto specifically now, what I think is still happening in the background is all these companies being built on the back end of it, right? And and one of the one of the examples I still like to use is just like the NFT markets, which people hate NFTs. I get it, but 
there are some, you know, there are some ways that NFTs can be used um, without it being this, you know, collector's type of item and some ugly piece of art that's worth, you know, like a, a drawing of a rock that's worth a million dollars. Um, there, there is utility, and I think that's where the NFT space is trying to, you know, provide some of that utility uh, in the market, and that's you know centered around more Solana and Ethereum blockchains. But um, I don't know. I, 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 I invest in all of those uh, different cryptos. Um, not much, again, just enough to sort of make sure that I'm not going to be upset if I miss another run to, for instance, for Bitcoin to hit, you know, hundred thousand. I think when I was you know, first, first getting into Bitcoin, um, I gotten some, I think it was 4,000 ish and then it runs up to 60 something. I, I think I'd sold it around 30 or 40. Uh, and now it's like, yeah, I could get it, I guess, right back where, where I had it, but I don't know. It's, 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 it's definitely a trading vehicle too, for those who just want to trade it in general, it's like, right. it's an amazing trading vehicle. You can just sit there and go in and out. It's like, what's the difference between that? Well, and, and I think, I think, you know, know, not to, not to interject, but I think that's right because I've, I've postulated before that, you know, crypto is sort of like an easy high beta strategy. You know, we have this whole idea of leverage averse investors. And so for a small time investor who doesn't have access to leverage investments, what's the highest beta thing you can do? Crypto, right? So I think that's really the appeal to some retail investors. And they always have this joke of why would you want to make 100% over five years when crypto can make 100% in three months? Well, that's exactly the appeal. Of course, it can all evaporate too, but that's life in a, in a pseudo leveraged uh, investment. But I, I'm sort of agnostic on it too. I don't have any any positioning in it. I do think, and I've said this before, it can have some utility in a portfolio context as long as the position is managed and you use it in the rebalancing context, just like any other high volatility instrument. But I have a suspicion that that's not how most people think of it. It's 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 almost like a religious debate, you know, among people of, of is it the future or is it just something that's there that goes up and down a lot. Um, and maybe it's all of the above, but it just seems like something that you can find interesting and ignore it and do well, or you can trade it and do well. Uh, but like anything else, you know, you, you kind of have to be aware of what game you're playing. Be honest, how fatigued are you both on my nonstop Bitcoin ETF tweets? Have I beat that topic into the ground? I, I don't think so. I mean, <laughs> I think it's important. And, you know, uh, I, I I think that would be... I don't even know the latest of it because I think actually no I, you're right I did mute you now that I remember I, I did I forgot <laughs> I need to, un, I need to unmute you I'm sorry um, <laughs> no it's it's definitely important I think you know you, you saw recently the stuff with Coinbase uh, and the SEC sort of get into a tizzy I think that's why you know crypto these crypto people they get upset with this because they're some like specifically coinbase is like they're trying to follow the rules in my opinion the way from what i've read it's like they're trying to follow the rules and then you still have the sec on the other side where it's it's like what are these nebulous rules that you talk about you know like you guys allowed us to go public there are rules in crypto i didn't know right (laughs) i just i don't know so that's why i said i'm agnostic on it because like you could we could all be burned on it at some point too and that's fine but we all at least we all in this room understand the risk of it too that's where like you're saying lawrence it's it's you know it it, it turned into a cult obviously and and you started seeing there was fin twitter and there's crypto twitter and then there was a lot of you know arguing between the parties um i think a lot of that's merged now Uh, i don't know if there's the, the silos have sort of merged into one a little bit i don't 
I don't think you still see the the, the stock art of just thinking that crypto is a scam and all this because again I think that was all price related and price driven and return driven. Sure. You know, it's just the people that missed on the boat. They're going to be pissed and they think this is a scam. It's whatever. And there are scams out there. That's the problem is that you, there's scams all the time on all sides. In any sort of financial yeah, product. Yeah, any sort of financial universe. product. So it doesn't yeah. it doesn't change the fact that the people are still building on the back end of this stuff and there is real value, you know, coming into the economy because of that. Yeah, and Lawrence, I think you hit the nail on the head. I've talked about this a lot, that if you're going to dabble in something like Bitcoin or other cryptos, very simply, and this is not investment advice, but it comes down to position sizing right. and rebalancing. It's a high right. vol asset. That could be the case for any high vol asset. It can be additive to a portfolio if you're doing those two things. You're minimizing that position sizing. You're getting right. the correct position sizing and rebalancing. Um, okay, a few minutes left here. I actually want to close with a little sports talk because some listeners may not realize uh, I actually record here in an ESPN radio uh, studio, which is where we're sitting now. And uh, we'll talk Chiefs in just a minute. But, Lawrence, you mentioned that you're a Royals fan. So how are you hanging in there right now? It's been a tough year. Uh, you know, I've after the the rough six or seven years in tobacco stocks, I've become numb to all pain. <laughs> so, you know, I do hang on to the memories of 2015 and, and – uh, one of the fun things that I think makes baseball a little different from other sports is following the development of younger players. And there's always that hope for the future. And uh, that's my favorite part of baseball is just kind of seeing the evolution of the team as they grow. And it was fun when, when they had Hosmer and Moustakas and all those guys. And we have hopes that this team, you know, that their, their, their uh, tribulations this year will be the seeds that, you know, grow into something successful a few years down the line. But it is a long, grueling season. 162 games of bad baseball is is hard. But, um, you know, having been from 1985 to 2015, I guess, what are we, 2045? Is that on the radar possibly? So Yeah, 2014 and 2015, your point, were just so much fun. And as we sit here now, it just seems like they're so far off. I don't know, Ram, do you have any thought? Are you a Royals fan? I'm a Cardinals fan. Cardinals so, fan, yeah. okay. Cut so, his mic. <laughs> they're, no, they're trash this year too. But I, I kind of, you know – we had some good years from mm-hmm. 2000 since 2000 really um and yeah. i i kind of i kind of gave up on boomer ball is what i call it now it's just it's <laughs> it's such like you said it's just so long it's incredibly long and the games like you watch it every single night i used to subscribe to the mlb package and then right. it's just you could have it on the background but it's just to watch a three-hour game or whatever it is and i know trying to quicken it up now but I kind of gave up on baseball. I'm more just interested in, in, in NFL now, which was, again, weird because I used to not even like the NFL. I was always a college football fan, and now I'm, like, a huge NFL fan. I still don't do the fantasy football stuff, don't have enough time for that. Um, but, it, you know, at least at least on the Chiefs' side, like, that's always that's obviously been, you know, super exciting yeah, for sure, the amount of pain that we've had to deal with, you know, previous to that with, with um, you know, just all the, the – the playoff losses and now it's just like you know kind of have a little mini dynasty right now which is super exciting it's almost it's almost kind of boring you kind of just like oh we're gonna win again you know type of mentality but it's it's definitely I think exciting that's the cardinals fandom yeah it might, it might be lingering yeah <laughs> all right we have like a minute left so yeah. on the chiefs defending super bowl champs two titles in four years do you want to go with a formal prediction for the upcoming year yeah the win again obviously <laughs> not even close I think well, they'll make the AFC title game. I wouldn't go so far as to say they'll get in. I just think the NFL is too hard to compete. There's a lot of people coming for them, and the AFC is pretty talented conference. So 
you know, but I wouldn't be surprised either way. Well, and then even if you show up in the Super Bowl, you may have the Eagles waiting there again, who right. you know, they look uh, tough. But, gentlemen, this was so much fun. Really appreciate you both taking the time and uh, being open to chatting like this in person. Let's definitely do it again. Thank you for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having thanks, me. Man. That was Lawrence Hamtel, principal at Fortune Financial, and the one and only Ramp Capital. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. I want to thank one of our sponsors, Principal Asset Management. If you would like to learn more about Principal Asset Management's ETFs, you can visit principalam.com ETF. Next week, I'll be joined by Simplify's Paul Kim. We're going to take a look at their ETF lineup, which just crossed over $2 billion in assets. They've had over a half a billion in inflows just this year and several new launches. So we'll discuss that. And then Democracy Investments' Julie Kane will spotlight the Democracy International ETF. Until then, have a great week, everyone.